back to another special Corona cast of Forwards Backwards podcast from the virtual Highbury and the virtual Ar- Argus. As always, we remind you to tip your bartenders. Uh, for the Highbury, you can Venmo Joe Katz, Joe-Katz-16. Uh, Peter, how do you spell cats? That would be K-A-T-Z. Not like the animal. K-A-T-Z. And if you're in Madison, you should check out our Twitter uh, for a link uh, uh, for the list of the typical Madison bartenders. Uh, Dan, what is our Twitter handle? Keith, that would be at forwards back wa two. Best name in the business. As always, I'm joined by the captain to my to Neil, Dan Fallon. Dan, which docu-series was a more bleak and depressing and disturbing exploration of the heart of darkness that lies within modern man and society. Tiger King or Sunderland Till I Die? Sunderland Till I Die. <laughs> season one, at least. I'm only on episode two of season two. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, Tiger King might be a little stylized, whereas Sunderland Till I Die is just, just, sheer darkness from, from start to finish also i think i think i think the, the the big difference between the two shows too is like tiger king kind of went into it knowing it was going to be dark i think the filmmakers of sunderland till i die at least season one thought they were going to be making kind of a triumphant documentary about a team returning to the premier league when, when in fact they documented one of the biggest professional train wrecks in the history of sports so uh i'm gonna i'm gonna vote my vote goes to sunderland till i die yeah, and, and season two is is depressing in kind of a different way, I would say. Um, my favorite detail about uh, Sunderland Till I Die season one is you learn there are now two places in the world where it's okay to wear the local athletic team uniform to church, Sunderland and Wisconsin with your Green Bay Packer jersey. That's, <laughs> that's it. That's the list. I, I mean, I, yeah. Uh, I, I will say the the I, I had forgotten how terrible the uh, the theme song is to until I die. The first episode came on and I said, "Oh God, skip um, intro, skip intro yeah, on Netflix." Yeah. yeah, but uh, what was what was the quote that I liked? The, the within like a minute of the first episode of season two, the new managing director, marketeer, as he refers to himself, says. The piss taking stops now. Yeah, that that is you know that it's now. Have you have either of you? Well, Dan, have you seen the four year plan, which is about uh, Queens Park Rangers? It was on Netflix for a while, but I think it's been off. That's another good one. If you want to watch a team just sort of slowly roll itself into self destruction. Yes, I I did. I don't remember. Yeah, I must have watched some of that because I remember like kind of the boardroom scenes and like yeah. where they basically just lie to the manager about how much money they were going to give them and yeah. go right to the camera and be like, yeah, we're totally not buying any of those players. More. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, we're happy to be joined again by the Ted Kaczynski, Che Guevara, Johnny Appleseed, and Willy Wonka of American soccer. Most importantly, <laughs> however, he's the owner of Peter Wilt's Blackberry, Hashtag technology of the future, <laughs> Peter Wilt. <laughs> Great to be on with you again, guys. You know, as I'm exploring my basement, you know, I am kind of reorganizing things during this downtime for all of us. I've unearthed uh, three so far 
uh, former Blackberries. So I'm up to four, uh, <laughs> counting the one I currently use. I have a feeling we might get close to double digits by the time I'm done with this. How have, long you ever had a non, have you ever had a non-Blackberry cell phone? Oh, gosh, yes. I had one of the first um, cell phones in American history, 1985. Uh, I had a, a bag phone, you know, the early bag phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, you, did it come with Radar O'Reilly? Indeed, it was very similar. <laughs> I'm at a Kenosha Twins game with um, my, uh, my boss, uh, Wojo, from the Milwaukee Admirals. And um, we were friends of the owner of the, the Twins, uh, Bill Lee, and he had us on the field before the game. We thought we were pretty important people uh, during batting practice, uh, standing around. And I've got my bag phone over my, my shoulder. And there's a, a bunch of little kids standing around us who are also allowed down on the field for batting practice. All of a sudden, my bag phone <laughs> rings. I unzip it. <laughs> Pull up this gigantic cell phone out of the bag. <laughs> answer it. And the kid next to me shouts out, it's a phone <laughs> in a bag. <laughs> I felt pretty important, let me tell you. So, and indeed, and 1985, 1985 time-wise is, is really important to what we're going to discuss today. Um, and I've got lots of theories about the late 80s, uh, you know, popularity of uh, indoor soccer in the United States. The theories involve cocaine, the 86 Mets, Max Hedrum, <laughs> and Mikhail Gorbachev. But before we get to that, Dan, the, 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 there was some forward Madison related news. As always, if you look to us as your breaking news source, you're an idiot. But Dan, tell me a little bit about that, that breaking news. Um, so I, I believe the league USL announced today that they um, are pushing back team related activities for another two weeks, which seems to be in line with what um, Jake Edwards mentioned on the phone call that or the, the zoom coffee with the Mingos, uh, which I don't know, was that two weeks ago, eight weeks ago, a year ago? I have no idea. Time is a, is a flat circle at this point. <laughs> um, so, and he had kind of said they were going on kind of two, two week horizons. So, uh, you know, that wasn't surprising to see that they're kind of pushing things out another couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, I think my, you know, my, you know, Peter not taking, you know, just Peter Wilt man on the street. Um, <laughs> You know, as I kind of sit here and, you know, take in some news every day and kind of look at the state of the world, obviously, you know, I think their dates that they're putting out there right now are incredibly optimistic, and I'm sure they would admit that. But um, I guess my question would be, like, from your standpoint, having been involved with leagues and all these kinds of things and the finances involved and all those things, I was wondering, like, if you could give us, like, one reason you think the league will definitely happen in 2020 and one reason it probably won't happen in 2020. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm not an official representative of the USL, so let me put that on the record. <laughs> and in fact, I'm not any representative of the USL because my job right now is on pause until games start being played. Uh, that's why I have so much time to talk to you guys, and it makes me very happy. Thanks, Peter. Uh, <laughs> I guess one reason that uh, it will happen is that it's important uh, emotionally, I think, for the fans to keep a, a connection uh, with the game, it's important for the athletes uh, to be able physically 
keep up what they're doing. Uh, and financially, uh, okay, I'm into three reasons. Sorry, you asked for one. No, 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 that's <laughs> okay. It's that's important for, for a lot of those reasons uh, to, to not skip an entire year. Uh, the reason it won't happen is because, frankly, Americans are um, either ignorant or selfish or unwilling to flatten the curve uh, by heeding the CDC's uh, best advice uh, and, and staying inside. And what the second part is that this will get better. At some point, we'll get over a peak and it'll start a downward uh, trend. But it's going to be tempting for leadership of this country to say, oh, everything's fine. Let's get people back in and working and let's get the economy cranking. But what will happen, of course, is that then the virus will come back uh, in spades and we'll be forced back inside. You know, uh, you know, several scientists are, are predicting that this wave will be kind of a roller coaster. And if that happens, uh, it's going to be difficult to complete a season. You know, maybe yeah. if they go that direction, it'll get started. Uh, but if too many people don't adhere to the advice and the numbers start cranking up again on cases and deaths, then it'll have to be shut down. And 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 then the season won't be completed. So would hear one reason for and against. Would the kind of starting of the season and re and then having to stop it again be worse than just stopping it? No. Okay. Um, I, well, I mean, not from those perspectives I gave earlier. I think you know, you know financially, it would get <laughs> some money into the coffers. Emotionally, I think it would get um, you know the players and the fans back into it. Um, and physically it would get them back working on it. Um, just from the league's perspective or the sports perspective, uh, the economy and the health of the nation and all that is a different question. And of course yeah. that would be much worse. Yeah. Um, that's of course, uh, chief epidemiologist of the forwards backwards podcast, Peter Wolf. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And so Mike, you know, and Peter, I think you hit on it. My concern has been, um, the same thing that- life will start to get back to normal, but maybe, you know, whether they do just kind of reopen everything or is it, you can go back to restaurants, but you can't have 5,000 people in a soccer stadium. Um, and how long does that last? And how long can we, you know, kind of, um, how long can some of these clubs kind of keep, you know, being a club uh, <laughs> um, during during this time, so um, appreciate your thoughts on that. And and you know, and Jake covered it in the call too. That you know, the big difference at the lower league level is that you can't play these games behind closed doors because um, so reliant upon food and beverage sales. You know, this isn't like the Premier League where they're talking about having you know, kind of. World Cup camp style where they're just going to play potentially all these matches behind closed doors because they're making so much money off the TV revenue. Yep, exactly. Uh, so before we get to talking about what we really want to talk about, or one of the things we really want to talk about, uh, I want to hear more about uh, what's going on in the basement, Peter. Um, you had to reschedule your basement cleaning hours to join us today, for which we're, we're appreciative. Uh, what are the what are the cool soccer gems that you've uncovered in the Peter Wilt Memorial Museum of uh, old programs and other ephemera? That's a long name. 
That's like our, that's like our, that's like our Twitter handle. <laughs> We're going to have to go to an acronym on that one. Well, <laughs> today is gonna... I should not be in charge of naming things. Correct. In fact, I don't even remember what that name was now. So, <laughs> <Shock. Safe>. Yeah. <laughs> Well, today will be a historic day in uh, the epic cleaning out of my basement. This will be the third load to the garbage with a full tub, a giant um, plastic tub of junk. So I'm getting rid of kind of the lower tier stuff that I'm pretty sure no one, even I, would like to keep. Um, <laughs> the rest of it, <laughs> the rest of it, I'm just organizing because it had been pretty much put willy nilly into into boxes or, or crates, and now I'm trying to organize it into um, w- one tub of scarves, one tub of jerseys. Well, actually, two or three tubs. <laughs> and two or three of jerseys and you know just categorize all of it um the jerseys are pretty amazing i mean it, it goes back to the mid 80s i think milwaukee wave probably my oldest jerseys actually a chicago vultures jersey from yeah 85 86 chava valencia uh, the vultures were a charter member of the american indoor soccer association which was essentially a minor league to the MISL. And uh, Chava Valencia was a really great player, a Mexican-American player from Chicago, great goal scorer. And sadly, at the peak of his career, I actually was at this exhibition game against Milwaukee Wave when his career was ended by a a, a vicious uh, tackle on the field that broke his leg. Uh, But I did get his jersey, so uh, <laughs> something came out of it, and uh, that, that's probably the oldest jersey I have. Uh, the coolest are the Chicago Fire jerseys from their day. I've got uh, Stoichkov and uh, Klopas and Bocanegra and Beasley and uh, uh, Winalda and several, boy, dozens of others. Um, my Novak and Kubik jerseys, I think, are on loan to... Um, uh, SeatGeek Stadium, which I'm actually kind of curious. I'm not sure what's going to happen uh, to that loan now that the fire is no longer uh, at SeatGeek Stadium. I may have to recall it. Yeah. <laughs> Your wife is like, don't don't recall them. No, <laughs> let, let them keep them. But you know, I, I can understand the desire, especially Novak was really, don't you think, a, a crucial player to that those early fire days. Oh, that's that's underestimating it. He was yeah. the the heart of the team on and off the field in the locker room. Um, his attitude and work rate was such that you know Chris Armas would always say the, the the team practices were more difficult than the games. They were more competitive, so that by the time they got to Saturday on the field um, at the stadium, it was it was easier for him. Uh, and it set the Peter set the temperament for that team. Plus, I would argue he's still one of, if not the most talented, skillful players uh, in MLS history. So yeah, he was, and he sold a bunch of tickets because he was a captain of Poland's national team at the time. And I understand Chicago has a sizable Polish population. <laughs> well, and didn't he? He really put an effort into reaching out to the to the community as well. I mean, wasn't Absolutely. that one of the, the, the not just the Polish population. community, which he. he he was very uh, proactive about that, but just the, the fan base in general. I think he had been kind of, I don't say dissed, but his old club uh, didn't 
treat him well at the end of his stay with um, Munich 1860. He had a chance to uh, transfer to uh, Spurs and it was something that he really wanted for his career and 1860 stopped it from happening. And so when he left, he really almost had a chip on his shoulder. And in Chicago, he really got to be the star of the show. I mean, not that he wasn't in, in, in uh, Munich. I mean, his last season, I think, at 1860, he was a leading playmaker in terms of assists in Bundesliga. Uh, what is, Peter, the, you know, we're, we're talking about stuff that, you know, is, is so low that even you wouldn't keep it. What is the dumbest thing that you found? <laughs> what, what's like the one thing that you're like, holy, how did I even, like, what, what, what possessed me to keep this? Gosh, you know, I, it probably doesn't fall in that category, but I came across um, a couple of autographed photos the other day. One was from David Hobbs. David Hobbs was an old race car, a British race car driver in the 60s and 70s. He now owns a um, a, a Honda dealership in Milwaukee. <laughs> and I bought three or four Hondas from him from his dealership over the years. I never actually met David Hobbs, but I remember one time in my negotiation, people forget before online and uh, you know, cars are us or whatever, um, you actually had to negotiate for car prices. And I got down to within $25 and <laughs> the salesman wouldn't give on $25. So we, we finally covered the gap. Uh, <laughs> When he offered me an autographed picture of David Hobbs. <laughs> Peter, you should have hired you should have hired that guy to be your sales sales guy for Madison. <laughs> <laughs> when you showed up with that picture of, of David Hobbs, did your wife look at you like you had just come home with the magic beans? <laughs> and I got this picture, honey. Because <laughs> I imagine you were really thrilled about that picture. And yeah, but on the other hand, I also discovered a, an autographed eight by ten glossy, personalized to Peter by the Black Widow, the billiard star, and in it she said, uh, "Peter, it was great to break your balls." <laughs> <laughs> what was what was her name? Bonley Jeanette Lee. It's, you know, it's, this is so wild because like I'm, I'm having like all these flashbacks now to like ESPN from 1983, 84, 85 when like they showed, I remember her, I remember, wasn't her husband also a professional pool player or something? I, I just like, there was so much random stuff on ESPN back then because they had like no live sports to show, <laughs> like, you know. Speaking of which, I, I recently saw a... Um because we have nothing better to do. Uh, a YouTube video of, uh, I think it was Wide World of Sports, that's how far back this was, of Minnesota Fats competing against Willie Moscone. And Howard Cosell is doing the interviews beforehand. It is a pro wrestling setup. You got to take a look at this. <laughs> the, the, the match itself is fine. It's whatever. It's pool. But beforehand, the interview beforehand... Uh, Minnesota Fats is every bit the promoter as a uh, mean Gene Okerlund. Um, Willie Moscone, not so much, uh, but they had a good rivalry. So this actually, I think, segues into, because I think this is one of the reasons why indoor soccer was, was pretty popular in the late 80s, 
because uh, ESPN had all this airtime and they needed to fill it. And I remember ESPN actually broadcast the occasional indoor soccer game um, during, during the, those 80s periods. Um, and you had this kind of growing expansion of the other thing is like Superstation. So I remember a, a while ago you put up a Chicago indoor match that was, I think, broadcast by WGN, which was trying to, you know, be a, a Superstation and was via the Cubs, you know, with cable and that, that rapid expansion. And Bozo, the, and Bozo the Clown. And I, Bozo the Clown, yeah. I always wanted to do the, the uh, ping pong bucket toss thing. Grand prize game, Bozo Bucket. Yeah, I'll, I'll oh, associate yeah. watching Bozo the Clown with, with uh, you know, winter vacation. That is, you know, <laughs> like, that's the only time I would be up and, and kind of coherent to watch that. Cookie the Clown was his sidekick as well. And the, there were like two or three of the Bozo the Clowns, weren't there? Well, there are more on that. The main one was in Washington, <laughs> D.C., Larry Harmon, um, or the original one. The main one was Chicago. Bob Bell uh, was the original, and he was the greatest. He's the one I grew up with. Um, they, after he retired, they brought in Joey Dioria uh, for a few years. But uh, Bob Bell was a real bozo. And, yes, Oliver Oliver was a great clown. Wizzo, uh, played by the magician Marshall Brodeen. Uh, and then, as you had, uh, Roy Brown. Uh, is Cookie the Clown. Um, yeah, they're, they were an important part of our childhood, <laughs> just like indoor soccer. So what, <laughs> Good segue, Peter. <laughs> yeah. What, what uh, you know, tell us a little bit about Peter Wilt before the Milwaukee Wave and the Milwaukee Wave before Peter Wilt and how they kind of met. Yeah, I mean, I never, you know, played soccer. Um, indoor soccer was kind of my introduction to the sport. I was working for the Milwaukee Admirals hockey team, for like four years. And I, I realized that I was never going to get a promotion there because my boss, the earlier mentioned Wojo, uh, was going to be a lifer. And in fact, 30 years later, he's still there and has the same job. Uh, so <laughs> it was probably a good idea that I looked elsewhere. And I, I went to uh, the Milwaukee Wave owners and I told them, you know, I've been kind of studying your, your business because they were kind of the admiral's adversary from a business standpoint. We played the same time of year and the same, uh, well, we both were in the Mecca. Uh, the Wave was at the Mecca Auditorium, like 3,500 seats, and the Admirals were next door in the Mecca Arena, 9,000 seats. And I told them I didn't really know a lot about soccer, but I, I, I knew about sports business and their business, and I thought I could help them. And they said, thank goodness, we're tired of soccer people telling us how to run our business. And um, that's how I got the first opportunity in soccer. That would have been March of 87. And, um, yeah, the wave was in the third year of existence in the AISA. And I, I took over, essentially, the front office business operations in the middle of the dark ages of pro soccer in America. This was the era without a first division outdoor league. So between 1984, when the NASL folded, and 2006, when MLS started, no first division pro outdoor soccer. So the best players in the country and a lot of the great players that had come over in the NASL and stuck around um, were playing indoor soccer. And it caught on in a lot of the markets that had had NASL teams and were attracting 10, 15, even 20,000 fans a game. And for a few years there, um, it was truly a major league sport. I mean, so in the, in the, you know, you had two divisions, right? You had the missile 
And then you had the AISA. And then that became, I think, the NISL and the PISL and the CISL. And it kind of kept going. Um, but the wave were in that second division. What, what about the, the first division? I mean, some of the, like, you know, I think Chicago, that spun into yeah. the... Well, um, the big ones, I mean, the, the, the um, major indoor soccer league lasted till 88. So um, at which time it, it, it imploded and the NPSL picked up a lot of the teams. But while it was going from like the 81 to 88, because there is an overlap with the NASL, you know, they were some of those markets, again, the Sting was uh, very popular when they were at the Chicago Stadium. They were getting some crowds of 18,000, averaging more like 11 or 12,000. Um, uh, the Cleveland Force was selling out Richfield Coliseum, outdrawing the Cleveland Cavaliers at the time in the same building. Uh, St. Louis Steamers in uh, St. Louis were outdrawing the St. Louis Blues. Again, 20,000 fans a game. Um, the Tacoma Stars, uh, same deal. So it was very popular. Uh, I mean, it's the league. The MASL is the league that brought Preki to this country. You know, Preki came over to play indoor soccer. And um, obviously did really well. And it was actually towards the end of his career when MLS started. And he went on to become MVP of MLS as well. And picked up a number of U.S. national team caps and... Um, I mean, that story is pretty remarkable how, it, how late in his career that all kind of came together for him as an outdoor player in America. He is a remarkable player. I, I saw him play indoor once when it was in the CISL, Continental Indoor Soccer League. So it would have been 1994 when I was working in the CISL league office. This was in San Jose, California. It was a regular, regular season game. I think it was their opener because he had a travel from Yugoslavia where uh, he's from and he was living uh, to San Jose and his flights were delayed. His connections were such that he didn't get to the arena until uh, the middle of the first quarter. He went straight from the airport to the arena and he ended up scoring five goals in the game (laughs) (laughs) after a 24 hour journey. And he he must not, he was not a, a spring chicken at that point either because when he, now he started with the Kansas City Wizards, right? In or the Wiz in '96 <laughs> started, and the Wiz. he was he was in his mid 30s by that point, wasn't he? Yeah, if only there was a machine that could tell us exactly how old Precky was and <laughs> again, what year he was again, born. You're, you're bogging us down with facts and figures. That's not 1963, so he would have been uh, 31 30. when he scored the five goals, and then by the time he won the MVP in MLS. What year was that? 90 or 2000, maybe? So it was 38 years 30. old. Yeah. 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 36. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. But then just like league, the MISL was full of some really, really talented players that um, for various reasons, including money uh, that they were offered. MISL was offering some pretty uh, decent cash. Um uh, some great players came over. Bronco Sagoda, Steve Jungle, the Lord of All Indoors, uh, Julie V. Um, were, were some really great, great soccer players that were playing in America at the time. So, Peter, you know, when you look at kind of indoor soccer back then and, you know, it kind of had a peak and, you know, then MLS comes along and that probably kind of cannibalized a lot of that. But what, what were what are the difference the differences between the challenges you were facing then versus what are teams 
facing now, or is it is it similar? No, it's a very different. Uh, two biggest differences are uh, the, the knowledge education level from a soccer standpoint of the audience. I mean, back then, very few people knew the sport, understood the sport. Uh, first generation immigrants was about it. And most of those were from uh, Eastern Europe. The, the um, Latin American immigration wave, at least in Chicago, didn't really strengthen until a little bit later. And then um, the other difference is just the, the, I'll say media at all aspects, both um, traditional media and, uh, and social media, uh, how you get your information. And now it's so much easier for soccer teams to get the messaging out. Um, back then, that wall of media was so thick and so tall, it was impossible or very expensive to get the messaging across uh, because you had three TV stations and a few newspapers that had no interest whatsoever in covering your sport. Well, and there was there was a fair amount of of kind of anti soccer bias from from sports writers in in a lot of ways. I mean, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel was was sort of unique, or it was just the journal back then, because they had uh, Charles Gardner who who wrote for them and, and enjoyed soccer. Um, I don't I don't remember exactly when he started. You probably know better than I would, Peter. But you know, a lot of major you know sports departments just had no interest, right? Yep, yep, you're exactly right. I mean, Charles uh, did a good job with the uh, with the journal uh, and the journal Sentinel. And the Sentinel side, it was Kenny Bunch. Um, you know, Kenny goes back to the uh, early '80s when he was covering soccer. They had a weekly soccer column it was on the front page of the Sentinel Sports. You know, frankly, it's something that papers nowadays don't have. And you know, it's I used to get irritated about that about the the poor coverage. The only thing you'd ever see about soccer in newspapers was um, teams folding, that would always get big coverage, or, or riots, you know, you, yeah. you'd see that as well. Um, but at some point, I, I think I realized that that was okay because our fans were no longer reading newspapers, soccer fans were getting their information online, um, partly because it was a demographic shift in, in, in how they consume the media, but also because that's where the information was. They'd learned, they'd become... A, educated to the fact that newspapers were not going to give them the information they want. And um, now, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's probably too late for print to ever get that audience back. Peter, would you say like they, you know, did you, do you see a shift in profile of owners of the clubs um, or is that, you know, what are, are the, are the owners coming to it with more of a soccer knowledge or is it still, yeah. and I don't mean this to sound crass, but is it still just an economic play for them or um, like, how has that changed well, over time? I, I think that's a generally a very good point you bring up is, is I'll, I'll say the demographics of the owners. There has been a big shift in that. Um, not that they've gone from only caring about the economics to caring about the soccer or vice versa. Um, but in the 80s and 90s, there were not that many people, frankly, that had a high net worth and an interest in soccer. <laughs> it was yeah. the, the Venn diagram was very short on the overlap of those <laughs> two categories. Um, and nowadays, because of the generations that have grown up, not just playing the sport, but also 
watching the sport, whether international soccer or domestic soccer, you know, naturally there's going to be a subsegment of that larger group of soccer passionate people that also have a high net worth. And that's unique. Um, and that's what we're seeing now. Uh, there was probably that in-between period with MLS startup where there were the ownership decisions were uh, you know, kind of betting on the, on the come that it's the, um, the sport of the future. Of course, they were yep. saying it was the sport of the 70s, sport of the 80s, sport of the 90s. <laughs> uh, and someday they might actually be right. Um, so there was some of that. But now, absolutely, I think you're seeing that the investors in the sport at all levels uh, are people that uh, really care about the sport and understand it better than in the past. What was it about indoor soccer that allowed it to pierce these, you know, the, this, you know, the media wall, the, uh, you know, indifference from or lack of, you know, high net worth owners and, and so on and so forth. What, 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 to what do you attribute its success in the, in the late I, 80s or its popularity? I think it was be, not because of what it was, but because of what it wasn't. It wasn't outdoor soccer. It, it was soccer for Americans. It was high action, the ball bouncing, pinballing off the wall, high scoring, loud music. Um, people forget that sportainment, what we've come to accept in the NBA, um, you know, the bells and whistles, the, the video boards, the, the gimmicks, all that, uh, it started in indoor soccer. Uh, and Tim Laiwecki, um should take most of the credit for that when uh, he started in St. Louis, but it was really when he was in Kansas City with the MISL uh, team there, the Kansas City Comets, where he introduced um, fog machines for introductions, rope lights, you know, things that now are, are maybe seen as a, a little rudimentary in terms of entertainment. But back then was really novel, and uh, it was picked up by um, pro wrestling, actually. Uh, took it, and then after pro wrestling, the NBA and um, you know virtually every other sport to some level has taken uh, those sort of gaudy uh, pyrotechnics and other uh, uh, attention deficit <laughs> uh, tricks. <laughs> to, so, uh, so what to you're saying is indoor training. soccer has has ruined America is what you're telling us. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say, Peter, I can I can. I could still right now in my head hum out the Canton Invaders, you know, entry song. I remember the the lights and the, you know, it was just like a spectacle, like when they came on the field and, um, and then, yeah. And then all the kind of like hokey in between the quarters, like, you know, trying to kick the ball into the little hole from half field, which I just saw the other day. I didn't realize that Giannis <laughs> had done that a few years ago in a wave game. Um, but like I, you know, that stuff is just like burned into my memory. Now, also, I was a soccer guy, so a kid, so like I remember the soccer as well. But like, you know, the experience of going to those games, it felt like it was a big deal. It felt like you were at an event, and I remember the, you know, I don't remember yeah. what the, the worst game. was playing the music while the game was going on. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. <laughs> now, which now religious. which now in the NBA they're doing all the time. I mean, they have a DJ running, you know, yeah, songs. Still not time. a fan. Yeah, just at a at a Bucks game. I remember. I do. I, I do remember. Sorry, just sorry, Keith. I do. Oh, yeah. I do remember Peter uh, during our short time as colleagues being 
very adamant about. Uh, during the 90 minutes, the ball is in play. Uh, there will be no, no discussion over the PA system unless there's a goal, a yellow card, or a red card. So Peter is a purist at heart. I will give him, I will give him that. Well, I am for outdoor soccer, that's for sure, though I do yeah. believe indoor soccer and uh, certain sports and in minor league baseball uh, yeah. where the attraction isn't necessarily the sport or the competition, um, it, it's okay. And not only okay, it, it's good. I mean, I'm a Bill Vec fan, and God knows he was the king of promotion. <laughs> uh, and I am the guy that, that thrust a night of a thousand Eddies on the world at an indoor <laughs> soccer game. Featuring <laughs> the actors who played Eddie Munster, uh, Eddie from Courtship of Eddie's Father, and Eddie Haskell. <laughs> um, related to that, I mean, I remember going to the Wave Games, and one of the big things was when somebody scored a goal, you the soccer balls, you know, rain. Oh, yeah. Sand, and that was like a cool thing, right? And it was amazing. We'd get rid of, you know, 20, 15, 20, those mini soccer balls we throw into the crowd. And every kid that didn't get one would be yelling at the mother. Can I have one? Can I have one? We sold hundreds and hundreds of mini soccer balls because of giving away a few dozen. They were like, I forgot about, they were like candy at the, at the, you know, checkout register, weren't they? You had, I did find a few of those in my basement as well. Oh man. I would, I, an old Milwaukee wave. Well, and then one of my, I think if I remember correctly, when a player scored his first goal, they would, and we talked about this, they would throw the game ball into the, into the stands. Correct. And my, yeah, yeah. and my uncle Roger, uh, Optoli, you know, uh, his, his dad was <laughs> Roger <the> Optoli, <laughs> Roger Optoli. Yeah. It's a family name. It's a Brazilian, it's a Brazilian naming convention, yeah, naming convention. son of <laughs> father of Optoli. Um, he actually caught well, one of his former players was, was Pat White, I believe, who scored his first goal for the wave. And he actually ended up catching the, the first, you know, ball he ever scored when he threw it into the audience and now has it signed, I think, by the team in his basement bar, which is kind of a neat little, little connection there. Well, Tattoo, um, one of the highest scoring forwards in indoor soccer history with the Dallas sidekicks would throw his jersey into the crowd. And, yeah. you know, this guy would score 50, 60, 70 goals a year. <laughs> so they went through a lot of jerseys. And, and the budgets were not that great. Uh, but, you know. uh, Hopefully Tattoo negotiated his own sponsorship so he could keep getting, getting jerseys. Uh, well, and, um, and so related to that, I remember Patrick used to be an old Milwaukee Waves sponsor. Now, I think defunct Patrick. But uh, – you know, kind of like Hummel. Hummel sponsored a lot of those early indoor teams. So other than the night of Thousand Eddies, Peter, what were some of your other kind of, you know, you're, you're now a high-bound traditionalist because you've told me your, your go-to move in every market is a locally-themed halftime race. But what were some <laughs> of your, you know, when you were younger and more innovative, what were some of the other things you did at Wave Matches? Well, we did a couple of different TV character theme nights. We had the the Wave used to always, even before I got there, did a beach party night, and uh, I decided to kind of uh, spruce it up a bit, and we brought in the characters from Gilligan's Island. We were we were supposed to have – we couldn't afford Gilligan because he was going to be 10000 by himself. And uh, so we went lower budget. We were going to get um, the Skipper, Professor, and Marianne for a total of $10,000, which, okay, there you go. Um, sadly, the skipper got sick and, 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 and 
passed away before the game. And his uh, little buddy, Gilligan, agreed to step in at no extra charge. Oh, wow. <laughs> 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 that that is, yeah, Gilligan, that uh, Gilligan uh, came in and uh, he was supposed to get in the night before for um, an autograph uh, reception with our season ticket holders. Uh, Professor Marianne got in on time, but Gilligan was delayed in the Memphis airport because of snow. Um, I picked him up at the airport about midnight. Uh, and on the way to the hotel, I realized that uh, I didn't have enough gas to get there. So we stopped at a gas station, self-serve, of course. And the little buddy jumps out of the car and fills up my tank. He did the work. What a good guy. Oh, man. In, in a I snowstorm mean, in Wisconsin. <laughs> and then the day of the game, I mean, you were the you were the captain in that situation. So, <laughs> <laughs> he, then, he um, also he also tied your car off to its dock when you pulled. <laughs> what else? We we did a night um, a TV Mother's Night where we, you know we tried to get um, Barbara Billingsley from Leave It to Beaver. Florence Henderson was alive at the time as well from. Um, uh, Brady Bunch and June Lockhart. Uh, we thought we had June Lockhart, but then she had a scheduling conflict, couldn't make it. So after all the A-list 1960s uh, TV <laughs> moms, uh, we ended up uh, going with a couple of current ones at the time. So this would have been 89 or 90. We got uh, Norma Arnold from, oh, yeah. uh, from the, the Wonder, Wonder Years. Years. Yeah. Great show. Well, by the way, in real life, married Orson Bean. Kind of a May-December wedding there. <laughs> you know what happened to Orson Bean? Do you even know who Orson Bean is? No, no idea about Orson Bean. Gosh. I was Orson just going to let it go. <laughs> yeah, I could see that in your eyes, Dan. Uh, if it's Orson too Bean, obscure for Dan and I, our listeners are totally lost. That's, that's what we're aiming for. Wait a minute. We have listeners? <laughs> you didn't tell me people listen to this. <laughs> this is totally an anti-podcast. Good. So Orson Bean, he was an actor, um, 50s and 60s, and then he got on the game show circuit. So he was one of the main guys uh, to tell the truth. He ended up, I think Match Game was probably the end of his his uh, game show stuff. But anyways, he lived a good long life, very healthy. Um, he was actually maybe the most interviewed guest ever on The Tonight Show. Johnny Carson, uh, whenever he'd have a, a guest cancel he call up Orson Bean. Say, come on over, Orson. We got a slot. <laughs> he was literally on hundreds of times on The Tonight Show. Uh, but anyways, a few months ago, uh, Orson, 91 years old at the time, in perfect health apparently, decides to jaywalk across Ventura Boulevard in Encino. Orson didn't make it all the way across. Oof. Oof. <laughs> so Orson's uh, life was cut off short at age one. Yeah. Yeah. And he was married at the time to Norma Arnold or the actress. Allie Mills is the actress's name, the widow of Orson Bean. And then Harry the other actress died at age 91. Exactly. And then the other actress we had uh, who came was Grace Zabriskie, uh, who, longtime character actress. At the time, she was playing the mother, that was the theme, TV Mother's Day, of Laura Palmer. In the original Twin Peaks. Oh my! Yeah, uh, David David Lynch, the director, has a connection to Madison 
you know, because he, he lived for, here for a little while. And do you know what his favorite bar in Madison is? I will guess the Caribou. Le Tigre Lounge, which if you haven't been, we, we got to go, Peter. They've got highlights. Road trip. Yeah. Put Peter, have you never been, Peter, have you never been to Le Tigre? I don't believe so. Where's it at? Uh, off the belt. Out, uh, yeah, it's off the belt line. And no tap beer, only bottles, and you cannot curse. Huh. And, and it's yeah, filled, just tiger, stuff, it's filled yeah, with tiger stuff. ephemera. It sounds like the Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis where you're not allowed to curse, and it's filled with model airplane ephemera. There you go. We're, it's we're, a chain. <laughs> <laughs> they came up with a genius concept, and they've, they've it ever since. Uh, one of the other things that you kind of innovated as well was, uh, and this is where, you know, cocaine and the 86 Mets come in, uh, Miami Vice uh, style posters for the Milwaukee Wave, right? You had, they were very neon, if I remember. They were very kind of cutting edge. Um, and it kind of turns out a, a relatively famous Milwaukee artist helped you with those, right? Yeah, and I think that Max Headroom was big at the time as well. Yeah. I think that might have played into it. Uh, John McCarthy, an, an incredibly talented graphic artist. And this was at a time, as going you know, through my basement today, and I came across the 1968-69 Chicago Blackhawks program, looking at the graphics in that, it, it looked like something I might have been able to do. Uh, their, their merchandise <laughs> page had no pictures of merchandise. It, it just, on, on angles, it had the names of different items you could order. And so uh, the late 80s was not all that different in terms of the quality of graphics that uh, souvenir programs would have. So when we contracted with John McCarthy, uh, who probably became more famous after he did this, so I'll say that this uh, uh, <laughs> contract led him to fame uh, with a, a wonderful series of, of Milwaukee uh, neighborhood and other posters. Um, when he did the, the graphics for the cover of the souvenir program, it gave us a professionalism, a, a major league feel, uh, because that was kind of our calling card to everyone who came to the games. And it, it's, it gave us certainly a leg up in relevance to uh, compared to all the other indoor soccer teams in the country. Uh, so, yeah. And I think even compared to, you know, if you want to talk about them as your, your competitors, the Milwaukee Bucks, I mean, those, those jerseys in the 1980s of the Bucks are now viewed as classics. I think at the time we were starting to feel they were a little dated. Uh, you know, the, the Admirals have pretty much kept the, the same logo and branding for, what, 30 years? I guess. The Admirals have changed their logo one, two, three. I think they've used five different logos in their 50-year history. By the way, this is a 50th year anniversary. And, and you know, I'm always biased to my eras. Uh, but the, the – it was called – was it the Andy Admiral logo uh, from the early 80s to late 80s? Um, is, is, is classic. They changed to the skull and crossbone maybe – I don't think it was 30 yeah. years ago – it might've been 15 or 20 years ago. Um, uh, but it, it's a good look. I actually like that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that was, but it, it didn't have that, you know, cutting edge kind of 
modern feel in the same way that, you know, neon colors yeah. and, and do you the think ones. the milwaukee bucks 80s uniforms if i'm thinking of the same ones were related in any way to the houston astros uh sundown <laughs> uniforms the 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 bomb pop jerseys that they had across the front yeah yeah because they the, both have the horizontal stripes with the array of diarrhea colors <laughs> uh, the 86 it was, like, it was like a it was like a it was like a sheet to teach doctors like if it's this color run this test if it's that color <laughs> run this test. the 86 mets had i mean somehow blue and orange were not as offensive as they seem to me now like those uniforms you see them and they just kind of look stupid i mean the Have problem with the mets, the mets is they basically were just the mets were just using the yankees yeah the pinstripes and um, for the home jersey. I mean, some of their away jerseys have been have been cool over the years. I like the one with the New York across it. Yeah. Um, and, and then you know we had, we touched on this earlier, but uh, you know, and, and we've kind of made light of this by talking about the the marketing innovations that came from indoor soccer. But again, the 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 product on the t- field was pretty entertaining, and they also they packaged it more. Uh, you know, you can go on YouTube and watch some of those old highlight videos, and those are much more lively than you would see from, like, the NFL or, you know, uh, Major League Baseball in terms of their, you know, highlight videos, too. Yeah, I, I touched on it earlier, but it was definitely you know, soccer for Americans. It was supposed to be high-paced, action-packed. They weren't just marketing to soccer fans. They were trying to market not just to sports fans either um they, they saw it as entertainment um we, we uh made commercials that were blatantly um sexist against men trying to attract women <laughs> we, we greased up players legs and had sexy music for these commercials <laughs> and, and so yeah you were you were spared some of the uh the restrictions that you know Dear God, that we, we treated these athletes as attractive in the, you know, sort of conventional way. I guess Jim Palmer and his underwear would disagree. Or I'm going to try to find the commercial with Saeed Bakhtiari oiling up his legs, and 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 posting it to your website. Forward backwards <laughs> podcast has a website, right? Uh, dear God, no, that's way beyond us. Peter. But maybe I'll just tweet it to you then. It's interesting. One of the, you know, kind of topics that come up now when we talk about, you know, division three soccer and you used the word last week, credibility, authenticity is, is now a a real buzzword, right? You don't want music during the games. You want the the fans to be providing the, the atmosphere like, you know, the flock does. Um, Is, are there any other changes that you've seen from that, that perspective in terms of, the experience that you've, you know, kind of gone through where there are certain places where it's okay to be kind of minor league baseball-esque and certain places where it's not. I think forward Madison has done, you know, the best job of any team I've ever been involved with or seen in terms of walking that line, taking advantage of the authenticity while the game is going on, as Dan said, during those 90 minutes, uh, but really having fun with it. Uh, the rest of the time, not just the halftime or pregame or postgame, uh, but all week long when there aren't games going on, having fun with social media, with some of the live appearances, and not taking themselves too seriously. And I, I think it's something that's caught on not just in Madison, but throughout the country and 
Um, I think you're seeing other teams using their social media in a more fun, serious way. Yeah. Dan, do you have any kind of last questions for Peter? The question was, um, could, who, who's the most underrated American player? Keith wants you to limit it to the kind of that 80s, 90s period. I'm saying I'll give you a wider berth and just say who's the most underrated American player that we've produced. I know. I, I'm a huge Chris Armas fan, and I, I think he never got his due. Uh, you know, maybe towards the end he got more respect, uh, but he. I, I don't think you can give a player like Chris Armas enough respect for what he brought to a team. You know, not only the consummate leader in the locker room, uh, but on the field he did all the dirty work. He shut down the other team's best players. And going forward, he always made the smart pass. It was usually a simple pass, uh, but I, I don't know that he was appreciated over the, the duration of his career. You know, there was a point where he became the captain of the U.S. men's national team, uh, which even then I don't think he was respected by the general fan as much as he should have been. Long Island boy, I believe, right? I'm sorry? He's a Long Island boy, I believe. Yes, he is. He is. Uh, Long Island uh, native. So he did play. I'm shaking my the, head. He played for he played, at, he played at Adelphi. Did he play for the Rough Riders at any point? Yes, he did. In the 1995 USISL championship game against the Minnesota Thunder, the last pro soccer game in America played before MLS started. My Minnesota Thunder was tied one-to-one against the Rough Riders with the countdown clock <laughs> counting down. Chris Armas gathers the ball at the end line with five seconds remaining, crosses it to Giovanni Savarese, who slams it home for the game winner to take a championship ring off my finger. And were the Long Island Rough Riders coached by Paul Riley at that point? Don't think so. That's a great Dan, question. Dan no, Fallon, no, Alfonso Mandelo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Chris Armas was also on the Puerto Rican national team, little known fact. Interesting. He played a a few games in what was called the Shell Tournament, like Shell uh, gas stations. Uh, And he had to have those games essentially epunged or annulled from his record. Expunged from his record, yes. Expunged, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Uh, in order to get uh, permission to play for the U.S. men's national team. What about American players from that indoor era that people may not have heard from, heard of? Oh, Michael Richardson. I mean, he was a great two-way player. Actually, good trivia question. Michael Richardson is one of two uh, soccer players to play for both the Chicago Sting and uh, the Chicago Fire. He only played one game with the Fire. I tried so hard to sign him for our first season, uh, but – um, he wanted to keep working for his father, uh, managing the soccer city in Palatine and playing for the Chicago Stingers lower division team at the time. We were able to get him to play one game for the fire. Uh, so he qualifies. And, uh, do either of you two know who the other player is that played for both the fire and the sting? No, Keith, I'm leaving you. You're going to have to take that one. No, I don't. U.S. national team, World Cup player, 1994. Not Yanis Mihalik. Correct. It's not Yanis Mihalik. <laughs> <laughs> huh. I don't know. Peter? Ah. You have an idea of what it might be? The, perhaps the great Greek. 
It Frank is. Lopas. Was it Frank Lopas? You got it, Keith. Well done. <laughs> oh, my, my trivia skills go on un, underappreciated, really, on this podcast. I had no help at all from, from Peter <laughs> on that one. Uh, I got it all on my own. Well done. Always a pleasure. Good talking to you guys. I know our time is up, but thank you for having me on. You as well. And before we go, Dan, is there anything that's grinding your gears this week? I just heard that the Tiger Kings got coronavirus. Uh, that's why I was texting on my phone. Um, so just yeah. too depressed to, to bring that up. <laughs> um, but still not as depressing as still Sunderland. Sunderland's <laughs> guy. So. And, and all kidding aside, I, I think it is like literally the best soccer documentary I've ever seen. Just giving you a, a kind of an inside look at a club Yes, in crisis, but also like what a club means to their community, what it means to the fans that support the club, and a club that's been around for very, you know, for for a very long time in a in a part of England that's gone through really tough economic times. And what does that club actually mean uh, to that town? And like, I think we've talked about it before, Keith. That it, there's a, you know, you could draw a parallel to to, to Green Bay, like a, a, a city where that the the team is just everything to the people that live there. And could you imagine if, uh, you know, next year Green Bay was playing in the XFL <laughs> and how people would feel about that. So um, uh, it's a great documentary if you haven't watched it before. Season one is available now and season two just came out as of yesterday, I believe. And, and season two is just pure, put it in your veins. And, and it also, I think, gives a highlight of what makes a club successful and unsuccessful behind the scenes. Um, and the and, ability to and producer, producer Paisley is telling us we're out of time. Yeah. She, she's, it's wrap. I'm getting the wrap it up box. So, uh, but it, I think it does show what, what the details are behind, behind the scenes. She's, she's finally doing her job, producer Paisley. I'm, I'm proud of her. Uh, but we will say until next time, forwards, not backwards, upwards, not forwards, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. Can I let you in on a secret? What's that? I actually have elbow patches on top of my elbow patches. <sighs>